So just again, that's from Leviticus chapter 27, starting at verse 30. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth of the value to it. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. No one may pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. If anyone does make a substitution, both the animal and its substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. These are the commands the Lord gave Moses at Mount Sinai for the Israelites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi, I'm Kathy, and um, I'm bringing the second reading today. It's from Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 35 and going through to verse 44. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. I, sorry, I forgot to introduce myself for those who are perhaps new here or fresh or have forgotten from last week. My name is Ian. I'm one of the ministers here. And we are doing a series that's got to do with the fact that we are in the process of building an extension to the family home. And so we're doing a series that is related to money, but stands absolutely on its own. If you're a person who doesn't normally come to church and you've learnt the mantra, the church always talks about money, that's not actually true, but it's nice for us to keep stereotypes in place. Uh, so you can I knew it. I flipped, I knew it. Um, but we are looking, more importantly, 
at a story that involves Jesus. Now, just before we pray, when you look at Mark 12, which is where this story comes from, similar, it's told also in Luke 21, but we're looking at the Mark one. In chapter 12, Jesus is involved in a series of pretty nasty to and fro's with the authorities. By Mark chapter 3, they've already decided that Jesus needs to die. So whatever view you have of Jesus, it needs to take in the fact that he was such a threat that within a very short time of his life, his public life starting, the powerful people have decided he has to go. And in chapter 12, they're just trying to work out exactly how and when. They're trying to discredit him before the big crowd at the temple by sort of showing that he's not as smart as he thinks he is. He's never been to uni and things like that. And also to find some key phrases that they can use when they take him before the Roman authorities uh, to, to nail him up. Now, I don't think the story's true, but there's a story of this robber, a burglar. He broke into a house, he's sneaking his way through, and suddenly he heard this voice through the dark that said, Jesus is watching. Then it said it again, Jesus is watching. Jesus is watching. And he turned his torch on to see, because that's such a weird thing to say to a robber. And he turned his torch on, looked around, and then the voice said again, Jesus, ah, it was a cockatoo, right? So he was, ah. And then he saw a bit of a movement to one side of the cockatoo, and then the cockatoo said, Jesus, attack. And the doberman got up and went for him. Right? <laughs> now, in this story, Jesus is watching. We're told very clearly that Jesus is watching, but it's not that sort of ominous threat. But... Um, we do want to keep in mind that, as we say in some of our prayers in church, we have no secrets from him. And Jesus is watching a most peculiar thing, a thing that's of great interest to us all. Let's pray that we'd hear not so much whatever I think, but you'll actually hear the, the voice and opinion of Jesus. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your promises to us and that you promised to meet with us like this, that you are here with us. Uh, help us to listen to you. Help me to only speak things that are truthful. If I say stuff that isn't, that you would bless people by enabling them to forget it. But whatever is from you, we pray that uh, we would all hear it and allow you to change us for the better. In Jesus' name. Amen. Right. So Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Let's see if we can get a picture up here. What the picture will help us see is... What we do in this church is we like to let people know where we're going um, with the Bible series. And um, so we pick passages and sometimes we give headings. This one was, was the heading was sacrificial giving. But when we looked at the, when I study the passage more and more closely, it's not necessarily what it's about. So um, uh, we'll just pretend we can see those pictures because they're not essential. Right. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. In our culture, that's a little rude. Most people, as you know, in this church, give to the work of God here and overseas through the electronic banking. Some use the wooden box outside. And I explicitly and deliberately try not to see what people are giving. It's a bit rude, but Jesus chooses to do something I don't know what it was like in that culture, but in our culture seems a bit rude. He's sort of sitting next to the box, right, watching what people are putting in. Now, the place that he's sitting is uh, where they had 13 wooden boxes, as you can see from the picture. Uh, and the boxes were called the trumpets. 
uh, not because they were musical instruments, but because they had a, a, the wooden box and coming out of it was a, a metal sort of shaped like the end of a trumpet. And it made it easier for people to put money in and harder for people to nick if they were brave. And they were full of money. It was, we're four days from the Passover, uh, one of the two biggest days in the Jewish calendar. Jews from all over the Middle East, uh, even as far as India, and um, from all over the Mediterranean would come to Jerusalem for the Passover, as the Bible said they should. And they would bring their yearly tithe with them. The tithe was a tenth that every Jew had to sort of take out of the money that God blessed them with. And so some of them would come with rather large sums of money. And so Jesus stands watching people give in this part of the temple. Here's what he noticed. Many people threw in large amounts. Many people. Large amounts. As they should. It specifically says many rich people threw. So those of us who are rich, ah, that's cute. I can forget that. That's the text, right? That's the temple. It's, it's about you know, 10 times as big as this building. It was massive. It took up quite a few football fields. And these are the, uh, the particularly that one is the one where they, it would have been like, archaeologists and historians have got, a, we haven't actually discovered any. When the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, they flip and destroyed everything. So that's just what we think it looked like. And people would come and put their money in it. And Jesus is watching Rich people threw in large amounts, and so we should, those of us who are rich. As you know, you know, I'm in the top 5%, probably even more than that in the world. I should give generously. I'm very rich, as uh, you probably are too. You mightn't be rich in terms of, you know, those who live on, you know, Turak and stuff like that, or Red Hill or wherever rich people live in Canberra, but um, we are filthy rich, so of course we should give a lot, and that's what a lot of them are doing. But, by contrast, verse 42, a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. There's a marked contrast between these two, and Jesus watches and he notices this going on. Now, these coins, we've, we've, archaeologists have got lots of them, and they were tiny and they're very, very thin. And they were, that was the, the lowest amount of money. It was Each coin was about... A 64th of a denarius. That's helpful. Now you know exactly how much it is, don't you? A denarius is what a labourer got for a day's work. So however much a labourer gets for a day's work, this is a 64th of it. Uh, and she gave two. We don't know exactly why, but we do know this. The Jewish temple officials, this isn't a word from God, from Moses. The Jewish temple officials had made a rule that you cannot give one of these little coins. Because it just wasn't worth anyone counting it. If you had to put it in, you had to put two in. And she puts two of these tiny coins in. Very small copper coins worth only a few pence. And Jesus is watching. And Jesus thinks this is, this is a moment where he wants to get his disciples back. Remember, he's only four days out from dying. So in terms of tra training his disciples, they've been with him for three years. But he thinks this is, there's something very significant happening here that he wants to draw to their attention, and therefore, if you're a Christian, it'll be to your attention, won't it? Because a Christian is someone who is a disciple of Jesus. It's not about being a good person. It's not about believing in God. The devil does that. It's about being a disciple of Jesus. Someone who says, he's the coach, I'm the student. I can see here a piano teacher here. People come to her and she's, she's the coach, and they're the disciples. There's exactly the same sort of relation Jesus has with Christians. We go to him and say, teach me. 
help me to unlearn stuff that I know is true because my culture has taught me, even though many other cultures know it isn't true, but we know it's true without thinking about it. No, no, no. What do you think? You're the son of God. Your true wisdom, I will learn from you. And so he calls his disciples across, we're told in verse 43, Jesus moves from being the watcher, the observer, to being the teacher or the coach. So it's a helpful moment for us to know, what does Jesus notice and what does he want us to notice about giving? Don't panic. At this point, it has almost nothing to do with the building. Okay? I'm not just misusing the word of God to make sure the building is paid within a fortnight. Right? So just, let's just pay attention to what, what God is saying rather than be too nervous. So let's have a look at what Jesus says. He calls his disciples to himself. They were evidently in the area, probably watching. Apparently people did do a bit of watching. Well, he didn't only need to watch, you could listen. Because where there are lots of coins, there was lots of noise. And people did throw in all sorts of gold coins and jewellery and all sorts of stuff as a, as a way of thanking God and giving their tithe. So Jesus says this. Calling his disciples to himself, Jesus says, Truly I tell you. Now, some of you may be more familiar with when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. Uh, he often, well, he doesn't often say that. He will more often say that than occasionally he just shortens it. Maybe he's tired. He's been arguing with these guys for ages. Maybe he said, so he just says, amen. That's where the word is truly. Amen, amen, I say to you. Or here, just amen. So when Jesus says that to his disciples, to modern day disciples or back then, he's underlining something. He's saying, this is really important. And I think it often has the sense, this is really important and you probably won't believe me. Because often what he says after it is a fairly strong and surprising statement. So when Jesus says, Amen, we all go, well, okay, I'm interested in this. This is obviously important and probably counter my culture. So I'll listen. So what has he got to say? Having watched, Jesus now teaches. Calling his disciples to himself, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Now, if you want to critique the Bible, here's a nice point to start. Right? That statement is patently false because she has not put in more. Right? So if, you, if the only way you can hear someone is with dumb literalism, don't read adult literature, which this is. Right? Not everything a person says is to be taken in dumb literalism. It should be taken seriously, which means taking, you know, listening to what he's saying. So you may, I've had conversations with people who say this, and I, it, it almost makes me laugh, it just shows how old I am. People will say something like he was saying, and it literally blew my head off. <laughs> well, unless plastic surgeons are much better than I thought they were, that's the one thing it didn't do. But we some, and it's a silly way of emphasising. This is not literal, but it's real and important. Jesus wants us to know. He wants anyone who respects him, I mean, really, not just in theory, but really respects him. He wants you to know that these people who are putting in literally a fortune, they're putting in a lot of money. Great wealth. I mean, if you were going to do a robbery, if you were a thief, and you got rid of all the birds and the dogs, uh, the place in Jerusalem to go was the temple. It really had a fortune from people coming from all over the Roman Empire who were Jews to put their money in their tithe and other money as well. And Jesus says, this widow has put in more and she clearly hasn't. There's a, and Jesus knows that, he's not an idiot. 
But he knows that there's a sense in which he has. What does he mean by that? Well, he explains it in verse 44. If you want to hear what Jesus says, this is why he says they at one level gave more, but in the important level didn't. Listen to what he says, verse 44. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. Twice in these few words we have the but she. Right? Lots of people putting in money when Jesus is watching, but a widow, but she came. Here again, Jesus is contrasting two people who are doing the same thing. They're both giving, but there's a huge contrast between them. And what Jesus wants us to notice, well, let me tell you what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, well, they put more money in, but they're selfish and they're just doing it to grandstand and they want the people to notice them so their giving doesn't count. He doesn't say anything critical of the rich. He doesn't sort of explain himself by saying, oh, the rich people, they're scumbags. You know, they, they've got the money through crime or, or whatever else. No, no, no. He says, this woman gave more. I'll tell you why. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything that she had. What Jesus is saying is, it's not how much you give, but it's how much you keep. Uh, I've been blessed by lots of generous family members and friends at times. I've been given some lovely gifts. Um, I won't bore you with them. Um, and this church, I often, in fact, the guy on the video said, St. Matt's is well known for being generous. And it is. I mean, it's not just that each year people give enough to, to keep the ministries here and a number of ones overseas going. But every now and then we run into a need and we have a special appeal and without fail, in my eight and a bit years here, the church gives more than we're hoping for. Right? And you end up with more money going. So when the most recent one, we raised money for um, uh, some refugees from Iran who are in Turkey and we needed to help them escape. And the church gave oh, probably about $8,000 more than I was hoping we would. Uh, before that... 40-something thousand dollars, I think it was, was given to do some helpful work in East Timor. So again and again, so, and, and I say, St. Matt's is a generous church. And there's a sense in which that's true. But there's another sense in which I can hardly ever say someone's generous because I don't know how much we keep. What Jesus is saying, the significant thing is not how much you give, but how much you have. So if you give a tiny bit of your pie and you've got a huge pie, it might be a lot more than someone giving the whole pie that they've got. And Jesus is saying the significant thing is the rich people, and again, he's not saying they shouldn't give, but he's saying do learn to think about this the way God sees it. He really notices this poor lady right? uh, in a way that perhaps we would hardly notice, and she may not want us to notice. She, she was probably embarrassed about her pathetic gift. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. She gave much more than the people who gave tens of thousands of dollars. Which I think, I want to say, is very comforting, isn't it, to those of us in this church, not me, but those of us who literally don't have much money. And when you hear of various needs and things you'd like to but you simply can't. Brothers and sisters, I'm not talking about those of you who say, I've got, such a, I've got a budget and I've got, I've got the world travel here and I've got my you know, investment property here and therefore I can't give. That's rubbish. That's not this. You mightn't be able to, but this woman has nothing except the money that she puts in there. That's what Jesus says. So twice he emphasises it. 
She put in everything, and then unnecessary, but for the point of clarity, she put in all that she had to live on. She left the temple with nothing in her purse, nothing in the jar at home next to the non-fridge, uh, nothing in her credit account. She had nothing, according to Jesus. And Jesus says she gave more. It's actually almost useless. Nothing would have happened in the temple thanks to that woman's giving. Right? And nothing would have not happened if she hadn't given it. But blimey, Charlie, God, God is impressed. The gift may not have been seen by anybody but Jesus, would not have impressed anybody. For the poor treasurer counting the money would have seemed like a waste of time. Jesus says God is going. Hey, fantastic. Wonderful. Put up a plaque in memory of her. That's just amazing what she's done. This is the point Jesus is saying. It's not how much we give, although that if you give a significant chunk out of a huge point, that can make a huge difference, as the giving of these rich guys would have made a huge difference to the running of the temple. I want to stress again, Jesus is not bagging the rich people. Right? He's not saying, oh, they gave a bat. No, no, he said, but he's saying, do notice that in real terms, that woman gave much more. So if you are unable to give, relax. Just you give what you can, or even beyond what you can. But God will notice the tiny gift. Um, because people who give tiny gifts when that's all they can, will give more when they can. But you do know that the research is very clear on this, that if a person starts off earning a certain amount of money, they'll tend to give, if they're Christians, they'll give a percentage. Sadly, usually less than 10%. But as they get more and more money, they give less and less money. They might give a little bit more, but the percentage goes down. There's something peculiar, there's a sort of a gravitational magnetic magic about money. And the more you have, the harder it is to be generous. And that's been shown in, in a number of studies in Australia. I heard a man speaking at a church in Roseville, which is a fairly wealthy part of Sydney. And he was just showing that Roseville gives hardly anything compared to a number of suburbs in Sydney that are much poorer in terms of percentage. Sometimes even in terms of uh, the gross amount given. But what Jesus is saying to us, and if we're his disciples, and even if we're not, if we, if we have any sort of serious respect for Jesus, the great moral teacher who we ignore very often, notice what he is saying. Right? It's not how much you give. It's the proportion of what we give to what we keep. That's the mark of generosity. That's the mark of great giving. Now, I was asked last week to say something about tithing. So very briefly... A lot of churches teach about tithing. Tithing is the Old Testament command, which you heard one of the examples read, that a Jewish person who'd been rescued out of slavery was put in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and that God had blessed them with. He said, you give a tenth to the, to the Levites who ran the temple and to the temple. And they gave a tenth. And often the Israelites, like us, would try to scam their way out of it. So if you had to give a tenth of your animals, you'd give the scummy one that's about to die. You'd give God the rubbish, right? You'd give God the leftovers. But Christians sometimes wonder, are we supposed to give a tithe? Some of you may have been brought up in a church where that, that was what was taught and probably ignored by many. Uh, a man I've mentioned who is, I think, one of the most generous men I've ever known, because I know a little bit about how much he earned, which was a fortune. But he gave away. I, I remember when he came and told me that he was thinking about he was going to go into Christian ministry. Overseas was his plan, take his skills over there and do, do something more than he could do in Sydney. Uh, I, was, I didn't know if I was happy or sad. I was happy for him because he hated his job. And he said to me years early, I only do it because I can raise money and, and then give it away. 
and, and I know that he paid for at least one full staff member at our church. That's a lot to lose, you know. Anglican ministers are paid a fortune, as you know, and they're expensive beasts because you've got to put them in houses and things like that. And um, I remember I couldn't work out, I was talking to God, I couldn't work out if I was happy or sad, you know, because I thought, how on earth are we going to replace that? Right? And, of course, the way it worked, we replaced it really easy. I don't know how, but there was no problem. But, but Mark had said that he was, he, he was an atheist. He became a Christian when he was serving in Singapore in, in a company. And the church he went to that his girlfriend, uh, you know, that helped him become a Christian um, was going to, their system, and he thinks this is wrong, but he thinks it was still helpful for him. Their view was that everyone gives a tithe before tax of your money, and the tithe wasn't even considered by them as giving. Right? The tithe was just paying your rent to God. Giving was stuff you did apart from the 10%. And so that's where this very generous brother learnt to give. And he said, the first time I ever heard him speak about this was, he was saying, you have no idea how much joy there is in being able to give and to help and to help important things start and keep going. But tithing, should, is it a thing that Christians have to do? And I want to suggest to you, I agree with those who say, no, it's not. There's nowhere in the New Testament that I'm aware of where Christians are told to tithe, followers of Jesus. But, but here's how it works. When you look at the clear pattern in the teaching of Jesus, here's how it works. Law of Moses, you shall do no murder. Jesus talks about the Sermon on the Mount. Hating your brother is on par as far as he's concerned. Thou shalt not commit adultery, that you must not have sex with anyone you're not married to. Jesus says, if you deliberately lust after a person, right, if you deliberately, I'm going to think, hmm, and, and, and ponder that sort of fantasy through, he said, that's adultery as far as God is concerned. So it's not an accidental moment of sexual interest, but it's when you look at a woman or a person of the opposite sex in order to lust is what he says. So adultery, deliberate lustful thoughts. Love your enemy. Oh, no, love your neighbour, the Old Testament says. Jesus says, big deal if you love your neighbour, if you like him. Love your enemies. So you see the direction in Jesus' teaching. It's here in the Old Testament, it's commanded. For him, with his new covenant people, the Holy Spirit, it's here. And yet some Christians have seriously argued that the Old Testament says we have to give 10%, but we can give 2%. I think that's deliberately perverse. Or the other thing that we'll look at next week is one of the ways that the Bible says is give like Jesus gives. That's the way it is in everything in being Christian, is it? Live like Jesus lives. Give as generously as Jesus. That ain't going to take you below 10%, brothers and sisters. Right? If we're playing that game, you'd really want to spend have some conversation with a Christian brother or sister who you know is going to love you enough to speak honestly to you. Now, there are some times where you simply can't give. God's no fool, he's aware of that. But there are many times when we could give but choose not to give because we're too busy with our plans to spend it on ourselves. I hope that's clear-ish. Right. Jesus watches, Jesus then coaches. She gives everything and all. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't stop her. I must, you know, when I first looked at this as a young Christian when I ran into this passage, I thought, he should stop her. He's just been saying what a bunch of jerks the people running the temple are. In chapter 13, when they leave the temple, because this, this is the last time he's in the temple, the last story is the story of this amazing 
giver. He goes out of the temple. His disciples look at the building and say, look at this magnificent building. And Jesus says, not one stone is going to be left on another. God is going to judge this temple. And, and he did. All right. At 70 AD, the Romans came through and the temple has never been built since then. The foundations are there, but the building's gone. So you could, I would have thought Jesus would have said that he would have jumped up, stopped her from giving or stuck his hand in through the trumpet and grabbed some money out and said, listen, sweetie, your heart is good, but these people are dogs and they're jerks and they're, they're heading for the wrath of God. Don't give them your money. But he doesn't. This is an act of worship on her part. She's obviously been up at the temple. She's been worshipping her heart as freshly gripped by something about God and she does what people you give. How do I say thank you? He doesn't stop her. I would have thought also he could have perhaps just taken one and said, here, sweetie, keep that one. It's like saying keep the $5 note so you can go to Macca's and buy yourself a cheeseburger and chips or something like that. But he doesn't. He lets her do what her heart wants to do, which is to give extravagantly. But here's what he doesn't do, which I must confess I've sometimes thought he should have done, but he doesn't do. He doesn't say, as he does at the end of the Good Samaritan, go and do that likewise. You know when Jesus tells the story about the man who loves his hated enemy? That's what the Good Samaritan story is about. It's not about being nice, giving your dirty second-hand clothes to some charity. It's about loving your enemy really loving them and caring for them. And it finishes up with Jesus saying, go and do thou likewise. He doesn't say that here. He doesn't say to his disciples, see what's happening? You'd be like the widow. Now, I I know some church fundraisers have said exactly that. That's a scam. It's a misuse of... But Jesus does want us to... He wants us to learn something about what it means to be generous. But it's not that... So Jesus observes, and then Jesus is our coach. Lastly, let's have a look at the so what. That's always the important question, isn't it? So what? Interesting? Oh, mildly interesting. So what? Let me suggest to you, Christianity is a little crazy. It, it, does, it does call on us to be radically generous in a way that may cause our financial planners or our wiser friends at moments of anxiety. Uh, one of my favourite expressions, which you may hear when we get to Easter, is in French, and I apologise for those who know how French should be spoken. I'm going to butcher it, but it's a beautiful thing. In the, in the French Mass on the Thursday night before Good Friday when Christ dies, they have this expression. I think it goes like this. L'amour de Dieu est une folie. L'amour de Dieu, the love of God, est une folie. It is a folly. Which is, which is not blasphemy, it's worship. So, you mean God gives his son, his beloved son, his eternal son, to come to this little planet to die for... You're kidding me. And friends, if, if at some stage the reality of that hasn't knocked you off your horse, you haven't heard it. Uh, you may have heard it since you were a kid, but until you... What? He? For me? Are you kidding me? L'amour de Dieu est une folie. It's a fo- there's a, the, the generosity of God. And this is our father. And, and the genetic sort of makeup from father to son and daughter does have its impact. This wholehearted worship. And so, um, 
the other, we, on our Bible study group on Friday night, people kept using interesting phrases when we were trying to make sense, you know, try to hear what this passage was saying and not overhear it. People kept saying things like, she gave everything, didn't she? Yeah, that's what Jesus says. All that she had to live on. She really sacrificed, didn't she? Yeah. She, and there are all these phrases that were being used that, that kept echoing in my head. Who? Well, Jesus. Uh, the one who's noticed this, the one who's going to be dead, nailed up four days later. Because there's a sense in which this widow is very much like Jesus, but in a much smaller, less significant sense. She gives all right, to God and probably to her neighbour. So there is a very real sense in which she is like the one who's teaching at this point. She has been transformed in her heart at the place of worship. And so um, one of my dear friends, his uncle, who's now dead, was captured at um, Singapore, an Australian soldier. The Australian myth is, oh, if the, we didn't know those stupid pommy generals, we could have beaten them, but uh, probably not. But he was taken off into a prisoner of war camp, which was, you know, was terribly brutal. And they were working. And uh, Dave's uncle would tell the story of these two mates who were really good mates. And you had to look after each other's food because desperate men would sometimes steal from their neighbours. Uh, people do desperate things when they're absolutely starving to death. Um, but sometimes the guys would keep their rice from day one for day two when they'd get this slushy sort of soupy thing just because it made it more edible. And that was when you had to be really careful that someone desperately starving to death didn't steal. And uh, Dave's uncle woke up at night and these two mates who were in bunks next to each other had an open window. There was no window, but they had a window sill. And he saw one of these guys get up and pick up the two bowls of rice. And Dave's uncle was about to yell the alarm. And then he saw the man take his bowl of rice and empty it into his mate's thing so that he would have twice as much. The man who did that died within about 36 hours. His mate, on the other hand, managed to survive. Now, that's the sort of thing we see with Jesus, isn't it, where Jesus says, no, no, I, will, I want you to live. I will die. That's generosity, isn't it? Now, that's the sort of family that we are caught up in. I'm not suggesting that anybody should be as almost reckless as her. But frankly, and I don't mean, I could easily be, I'm not suggesting anybody should. I don't think anybody will. But if, if, if God calls you into that, fine. Um, but I don't think that's the Bible's general sense of what you do with money. But it is the sense that that's part of the, that's part of the DNA, which is radical generosity. Uh, that's what it does to us. At this point, um, let me quote you from the great C.S. Lewis. I'll go away from that just for a second. Many of you know what an ugly little creature I was. Not physically, I was enormously handsome then. But what an ugly person I was. Um, I lived near rich people. I went to their houses. I needed a house on the harbour. I wanted to have what they had. So I had a little list of about five girls whose dads were really, really rich. And I worked out which one, Robbie, I was going to marry her. She was going out with a mate, but I knew that wouldn't last. But you can't move in until it's over. So I was waiting for Robbie. She's a nice gal. But her dad owned TNT Transport and Ansardane Airlines. And, the, you know, he was... I, I could look after that. So I, I went from school and did a commerce degree, or I did a one-week part of the commerce degree. They gave us so much work, I thought, I'm out of here. What is this language? But that was my plan. I'll learn how to run money so that when I 
marry wisely, love in the right place. Um, anyway, I became a Christian and I knew very quickly, well, that obviously cannot be a life plan, using people, right? So I was trying to work out what to do with the money I was earning as a bus conductor because I was earning a fortune. And I remember being on a 380 bus heading into Bondi, nice part of Sydney, and I was reading C.S. Lewis's uh, book, uh, what is it called again? Mere Christianity. If you haven't read that, do yourself a favour. He's a beautiful writer. But here's what he says. This might frighten you from away from him. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. I've never found anything much clearer than this. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid that the only safe rule is to give more than one can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on luxuries, comforts and amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those whose income is similar to our own, we are probably giving way too little. If our charities do not pinch us, hamper us, it is way too small. There ought to be things we want to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. I am not suggesting that charitable expenditure equals the St Matt's building fund. I couldn't care less if God calls you to give money elsewhere. But I think his point is right. As followers of Jesus, as followers of the one who was rich and became poor so that he could enrich us, as followers of the one who says this widow is giving, this is what real serious giving is like, uh, I think there's, there's wisdom in that. I remember my youngest daughter, Ellie, asking me once some years ago, said, when she worked out that we were giving money to various things, she said, is there anything that we aren't doing as a family because you're giving? Now, that's, the, that's, a, that's a very good question. I had to think very hard. I said, yeah, a couple of things. And Ellie said, well, that has to stop right away. Because... <laughs> um, I was an Anglican minister. She was at a very expensive private school because we got these massive discounts, as you do, and so she was hanging with the rich. And she kind of liked what they did and she never got to do. Um, but I think C.S. Lewis is right. right. You do not give God your leftovers. Right? Give that to the dog. Right? You don't get to the end of the year and think, well, how much have I got left over after I've spent money on all sorts of luxuries that are essentials in Australia? Now you start with the giving. I knew this lady, she was, she was elderly and not rich. She went to see a Christian financial um, advisor, or she thought he was Christian, and she, he said, write down a list of all your expenditures and, and income, etc." and on the top, she gave 10%, because she thought that's a good place to start. And her advisor looked and said, that has to stop. She said, what do you mean? You, you, you just don't have enough money to do that. She said, that ain't going to stop. Right? That's one thing that is not negotiable. She thought she should give at least 10%. And her testimony was, after some years, I never ran out of money. Although the man told me I would. Right? You honour God in these things. I want to say this is the most generous act I think I've ever witnessed, that I'm aware of how generous it was, um, was from a fitter and turner who worked at the BHP Steelworks back in the mid-70s. Um, I was, uh, I'd gone with no preparation, because I had never thought of doing it, into a youth ministry course. And I went to work at a church down at West Wollongong, which is miles away from where I lived, near Bondi, and was studying in Newtown. I had a girlfriend in Camden, and I thought, this can't work. Trains are uh, beautiful, but limited. So I started to pray, God. I didn't tell anyone, God, I, I think maybe I need a car. So I can, I was trying to serve him and trying to be nice to my girlfriend. 
And I was thinking, Jill's going to have to go. Um, I just can't do it. And I prayed, only for about a week or two, told no one. Colin Ward, who was the other leader of the youth group, Fitter and Turner at the Steelworks, came to me one Friday after I got to the church from the train, and he said, Ian, how do you get down here each week? I said, the train. The train's lovely. If you've ever done the train trip from Sydney to it's a nice trip. I said, the train. He said, well, he said, I was praying this week, and I feel pretty sure that I was getting a nudge from God. He never, ever spoke like that normally. He said, I feel like getting a nudge from God. I should buy you a car. Well, I was kind of happy and felt weird, because it is weird to receive charity, uh, in a sense. But I had been praying about it. So he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work a few double shifts. And then in a few weeks' time, we're going to buy your car. And he did. Bought me a little mini. It survived just until the time I got a full-time job as a youth minister. And then God took it to heaven. (laughs) Or it was stolen from outside a police station and had no battery in it. So you tell me what happened. So anyhow, I I hope to meet it again one day. But... um, but, anyway, but here's what Colin did. Colin was not a rich guy. He lived with about four or five other blokes. They shared a house. How did he get the money? He worked a series of double shifts, 17 hours a day, in the steelworks. And blimey, they, they worked. And it was hot and ugly. Over weeks and weeks, he worked double shifts, paid more tax. So we had to, had to you know, did all that. Until he finally got enough money, he bought, he bought the new youth minister a car. That, I think, is generous, isn't it? Any, any one of hundreds of people in that church could have bought me a car. And it would have been lovely, and it would have been a good deed, and it would have been, but it wouldn't have been generous in the way that it was with Colin. Because he's not saying, what have I got left over? No, I'm sorry, I'd like to help Ian. Here's 50 bucks so you can get a first class ticket on the train. But it's that hard work. So brothers and sisters, I suggest to you, this is what this passage is saying to us. It's long, I'm sorry about that. Not sorry enough not to do it, so that's a worthless apology, I guess. But this is important. Again, why does Jesus speak so much about money? Because you're obsessed with it, which is why you hate to hear about it. He loves you and he knows how important wealth is. Perhaps not dollars, you know, in terms of hard cash, but all the things that wealth can protect us from in our fears, which it can't, and the things it opens up to us. So Jesus talks about it. The only thing he suggests is the alternative God. It's God or money. So brothers and sisters, let me finish with the... Um, where I think the energy for this comes from. And that is in that hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. You remember the story of that hymn? Young man comes home from church, really cranky about the hymns. This is back in 17-something or other. So there's a long history of people being unhappy with church music. He came home, whinged to his mum and dad about the rubbish hymns that they were singing, and they said, if you don't like them, why don't you write one yourself? So he did. Now, he did edit it, but this was his hymn. First verse. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. So he's saying, when I look at the cross of the Prince of Glory, my richest gain. Last verse. Were the whole realm of nature mine, That was an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I take it that's what's taken a hold of this lady. She's caught some sort of a glimpse of the glory of God. So she gives. She gives what she could. And that's, uh, Jesus says, it's important for us to get that right. And it'll be important for Emma to learn that 
from the example of her parents and from the teaching because she ain't going to learn it from our culture, which is a leftover culture. All right, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we know that as you say a number of times, your ways are not our ways. Lord Jesus, you are the word of truth. Uh, you are the way, the truth and the life and we know that your ways are, are right and true and best. Help us to trust you so we don't live in fear of not having enough. But we can live with the freedom of being your loved children, uh, to be generous to those in need. Please help us in some way um, to be free from the stranglehold that wealth and all those things has upon us, that we would know the freedom of the sons and daughters of God. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.